Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. What do you guys think? Can life in a fallen and sinful, cursed world be difficult? Can this world be difficult to live in? I think so. Every year is every year is difficult. Every year has its difficult moments, but it just seems like the past couple of years have been a little more so. Wouldn't you agree? It's been a wreck. <laughs> uh, just politically. Think politically. I mean... We've seen tyranny, I think, rearing its ugly head the past couple of years. The, the 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 leaders in the world they just don't want to let a good crisis go to waste. You know, they don't they don't talk a whole lot about returning to normal. I don't know if you've noticed that. And uh, because I don't think they want to, I think they want to see this as a time of transition, not a returning back to normal. Uh, you think about um, just how COVID has been. It's a real bug, right? But it's also been exaggerated and it's been used for power, for lording it over the people. Uh, you think about culturally where our culture is at and how the idea of relativism, just the idea that there's basically no, oh, I made it crash the nativity up here on my pulpit. Um, sorry about that. Um, culturally, the idea that there's no objective truth no certain truth, no, uh, you know, just morals are wishy-washy. We really don't have any sort of absolute truth or morality. Everything's just theory. I mean, our culture has just crossed lines we never dreamed it would cross, using terms like gender fluidity. Unbelievable. Never thought we would even... Who, who even came up with that concept, you know? Uh, just prophetically, you, you look at the globalism that's going on and the, the rhetoric in the world's leaders... I don't know if you're paying attention to what they're saying at some of the the meetings that they're having, and it's just not difficult to see that things are lining up for the end times. And, you know, we're encouraged by that in the sense that uh, Christ's imminent return could happen, you know, any moment. We're excited about that. We're excited for Him to come and get us and take us where? The Father's house. To rescue us from the wrath to come. But at the same time, it's kind of hard to watch. I, mean, I feel like we're experiencing not the, the birth pangs, the actual birth pangs that are described in the book of Revelation and, and the Olivet Discourse with the plagues and the earthquakes and all those different things. I think we're seeing like the feeling the Braxton Hicks birth pangs, you know, like kind of the tremors that come before the actual birth pangs. They're kind of getting a taste of what those are going to be like. Uh, one of the ways I know we're living in the end times is this, is when they come up with artificial beef. Sorry, someone sent this to me recently. <laughs> and they're like, which one are you going to eat? I thought that was, a, that was a super sign of the end times right there. We're, we'd rather eat the stuff on the left than the beef. <laughs> you know? That's a joke. I'll take it off the screen. Um, it's just a way to lighten the mood here. 
but personally, many of us are wrestling with, with physical pain in this sin-cursed, fallen world. We're wrestling with, uh, maybe it's just chronic health issues that just won't go away or, you know, constant new issues that are coming. Uh, with little kids in the home, I've got three of them, five and under, it feels like we're just on this constant two-week rotation of runny noses. Two weeks with, two weeks without. Two weeks with, two weeks without. And uh, emotionally, you got to think we're all wrestling with different broken relationships. Maybe it's broken dreams, lack of purpose, loss of loved ones. Spiritually, we're, we're battling the, the sin nature, aren't we? All the time. We have the divine nature, the Spirit of God. It's always warring against the flesh, and we're just in this battle. And uh, these are, this is just what it's like in a fallen, sin-cursed world, ain't it? All of these different things. There's a lot of things in this world that we just can't change. We can't do a thing about it. One man said, Our many hospitals, doctors, medicines, pesticides, insurance companies, fire and police departments, funeral homes, they all bear testimony to a cursed earth. And my question this morning is, is is this world in the conditions that we're experiencing now, is this really all there is? Is this as good as it gets? (laughs) Man, I hope not. (laughs) I hope not. And we have good reason for hope. But where do you you look for hope? That's kind of what we want to talk about this morning. That's what we want to answer from Hebrews chapter 2, looking at reasons for the incarnation, how the person and work of Christ, God becoming a man, taking on flesh, how He speaks hope to our condition in this fallen world. Remember the context as we turn to the book of Hebrews. If you missed last week's sermon, I would highly recommend going back and, and uh, catching that online. Uh, that will help you understand today's sermon a little better because we talked a lot about the purpose of the book of Hebrews and the context and all of that. But uh, remember, this is an audience that is Jewish, hence the title Hebrews, right? The Hebrew people, it's a Jewish audience. They're going through threats and persecution. Life is really difficult for them. You've got some, some Judaizers, basically these people who are, who didn't, who didn't believe in the Messiah. The people are still living under the old Judaic system with the law of Moses and the temple and the priesthood and all of that. And so these guys are actually persecuting the new believers, trying to get these new believers to revert back to Judaism with threats and persecution and things. And they're trying to basically pull them back away from Christ. But the writer of Hebrews is demonstrating, look, don't go back to that because Christ is superior in every way. He says, actually, everything that was in that Old Testament or that Old Covenant... You know, the law, the, the, the temple, the priesthood, all that stuff was designed by God to point you to Christ so that when Christ actually came, you would know it was Him, unmistakably. Okay, so that's the theme of Hebrews. Christ is superior. He's better in every way. Don't turn away back to Judaism. It has nothing for you. It's, it's Christ has come to fulfill it. Basically, don't, don't drift from Christ. That's a key word in today's text. Don't drift from Christ to something that's inferior. Okay, and, and so far, last week we looked mainly at how Christ is superior to the prophets in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. 
at the introduction. Uh, And uh, so far, since then, from verse 5 through uh, 13, 14, he's been demonstrating how Christ is superior to the angels. Okay, you had, again, Judaizers trying to get Christians to go back to Judaism. And they're trying to demonstrate the superiority of the law by saying that it was given or mediated through angels. And Paul references this as well. Uh, how when God gave the law on Mount Sinai, there was actually angelic mediation going on. Like the angels were part of that. That was Jewish tradition. You don't see it in the Old Testament, but that was the tradition. And uh, Anyway, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, you know, that was given through angels and, and Jesus is a man. And so they're trying to demean the, the new covenant coming through a man. But actually, he's going to make the point that actually Christ's humanity is ultimately not a sign of his inferiority. That's the point he's going to make. He's superior to angels. And so the argument's already been made uh, from where we left off to where we pick up in chapter 2 that the Father never called any of the angels his son. Uh, the angels actually worship the Son, and he's quoting all these Old Testament scriptures. The Son is actually referenced as, as eternal God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's a reference to the Son. And uh, the angels actually serve the Son, and they serve men who inherit salvation. Believers. Look at uh, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So angels actually served man. And so you could see why Satan obviously said, I don't want to do that, right? I'm not a servant. Satan wanted to be worshipped. He didn't want to be a servant. Uh, So he uh, basically, you know, gave up his divine purpose. But uh, anyway... Let's pick it up in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We're in, again, we're looking at Christ's superiority to angels. Now, for this reason, we must pay closer attention. You remember the emphasis on hearing God's voice in this book? Listening to God. God spoke long ago. He's still speaking. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So we're going to kind of stop and address this portion of Scripture. You see the emphasis here on God speaking again. God has spoken. He's speaking. Are we listening to what he has said? Are we listening? Are we paying attention? Um, the, the, the writer's actually writing as if <clears throat> God is still speaking in the present to them through his word. Yeah, he spoke long ago, but right now he's speaking to you, Hebrews, through his word. Today, he'll say in chapter 3, today, if you, you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today, listen to his voice. And he's saying Jesus wasn't just another man. He was, he was God in the flesh. 
And uh, if a covenant delivered by angels is so binding and so unalterable, how much more a covenant delivered by God Himself? You see what the point he's making there? If the old covenant was binding, how much more this one that God delivered by Himself as a man? So he's saying don't drift away from Christ to something inferior. The word uh, drift reminds us of a ship that's cut free of its anchors. Drifting away from Christ, the anchor's been, or the anchor, the rope to the anchor's been cut, and you're you're drifting away, and the wind's going to carry you into peril, basically. Um, to drift away from the sun, he's saying, would bring consequences. Now you got to think, if a non-believer rejects the sun, there's an in- inescapable punishment, right? Eternity in hell, away from God, separated from God forever. Think about this. It's amazing. If you're an unbeliever, this world is the best you will ever have it. You ever thought about that? For an unbeliever, this world, this sin-cursed world is the best you're ever going to have it. But if you're a believer, I mean, it hasn't even started yet. This is the worst you're ever going to have it. This is the worst you're ever going to have. Isn't that great? But even as believers, and I think that's who this warning is actually written to. It's not talking about those who reject salvation. It's talking about those who are neglecting their salvation that they've already received. Um, Neglecting salvation, and we kind of talked about this this morning, that would bring what? That would bring divine discipline. We were just talking about that. It's amazing. Um... As believers, and that's a major theme in Hebrews, by the way. Chapter 12 is all about discipline for believers who are neglecting their salvation. As believers, our eternal security is never in question, right? When you believe, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. He's not going to take His Spirit back from you. However, we can, if we're not walking in fellowship with the Lord, experience uh, divine discipline. We we might... uh, feel a heavy hand from the Lord at times if we're walking in unconfessed sin, we're, we're not paying attention to what His Word has said, we're, we're not in prayer, we're not gathering with His people. He mentions that in chapter 10, verse 25. Uh, in, I gave a devotional, I put a devotional in your, in your, in your bulletins. It talks about a man named, uh, what was his name, Robert Robinson. He wrote that, 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 that hymn that we love to sing called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Come thou fount of every blessing, right? Tune my heart to... Well, he wrote that. He was converted under the preaching of George Whitfield, and then he becomes a pastor, and yet somewhere along the way, he actually started to neglect spiritual things, and he started to travel the world, maybe trying to please his conscience, to ease his conscience, because he wasn't walking with the Lord anymore. And he runs into a young lady who's got this hymn, actually. She's reading through his hymn that he wrote, and she says, what do you think of this hymn? <laughs> and, and, you know, it's glaring him in the face. And he didn't want to tell her that I actually wrote that hymn and I'm not walking with the Lord anymore. Well, anyway, he does eventually reveal his identity, that he wrote that. And she says, you know, those streams of mercy are still flowing for you. And anyway, he was restored to fellowship with God through that experience. You know, he didn't lose his salvation, but he was disciplined by the Lord and uh, restored to fellowship. But notice 
the signs and wonders here were done among them once, but the signs and wonders weren't being done anymore. The language of this text is really helpful for understanding signs and wonders and miracles and all of that. Okay, it was confirmed. What was it confirming? What were those signs and wonders confirming? The message of the gospel. When the, the apostles were among them, the apostles were doing signs and wonders, and it affirmed the message of salvation in Christ so that they would have an anchor in Christ when difficult times came. I mean, God wasn't solving all of their problems still. I mean, they're being persecuted. Signs and wonders aren't happening. They're not getting their miracles. Difficult times have come, yet the point here is in our most difficult moments, instead of you know, cutting free from the anchor and letting our emotions and circumstances make us drift, letting not what's not true guide us or carry us away, uh, instead of letting that happen or always expecting some miraculous divine bailout, we need to anchor ourselves down to Christ in belief. Anchor yourself to Christ in faith. Don't drift away. Stand firm in faith. Verse 5 now says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come. Whoa, what? There's a world coming? That's different? Did you see that? He didn't subject the to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, and he'll, he'll quote Psalm 8 here, but just for reference here, just uh, so you understand what the writer of Hebrews is doing, um, someone has testified somewhere saying is not saying that he forgot the scripture reference <laughs> or who wrote it. Uh, you know, like, oh, I don't remember where that verse is, and I, I need to Google that. Um, he's actually intentionally not including the reference. He's not including the human author for a reason because he wants the focus to be on God's voice. Isn't that great? So all of the scriptural citations in Hebrews, none of them have a human author mentioned. It just says the... It says this, and, and it says again, and whatever, you know, and again, and when he again brought forth, brought the firstborn into the world, he says, the son says. I mean, it's all about God speaking. No human author is mentioned by name. And I think that's why we don't even have a formal greeting in the book of Hebrews, right? He didn't introduce himself. We don't even know who the writer of Hebrews is, and there's a lot of Bible critics out there who want to give the Bible a hard time for that. Give the book of Hebrews a hard time. Well, we don't know who the author is. Well, that's intentional on part of the author because he wants them to see this letter as a word of exhortation from God himself. Isn't that great? Uh, at least that's the way I understand it. The more I study it, it's just God is speaking. That's the emphasis. I love that. But uh, let's continue. Uh, verse... Middle of verse 6. What is man, this quoting Psalm 8, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But, get this, don't miss this, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. 
But we do see Him, Christ, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Plural sufferings right there. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them his brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So there's a lot of deep theology here, and we obviously can't tackle every <clears throat> every little snippet of it. But uh, I've tried to condense this down into three reasons for the incarnation that speak to our worldly conditions, the conditions of this world that we're living in. And most of our time, 80%, 90% of our time is going to be spent on this first one. And this is the second reason for the incarnation because we looked at the first one last week, right? God revealing himself was the first reason. The second reason I've got for us is just to restore man positionally. Maybe more, I don't know, maybe we could say functional, functionally. Restore man to his original function. The, the author quotes Psalm 8, and the, the psalmist is pondering how God originally placed man over the work of his hands, you know, at, in Genesis 1 with creation. God creates, and, he, and then he, the last thing he creates is man, and he he, he gives it to him. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, the creeping things. Fill the earth and subdue it. So God gave man this incredibly honorable and glorious function of ruling over his creation on his behalf. We call that, in technical terms, the God's theocratic administrator. His theocratic administrator. Man was to rule for God. You see, God has... If you just understand these two forms of the kingdom, I, this will save a lot of your confusion when you go to read the Bible and understand God's kingdom. God has a universal kingdom that is always in control of things, right? Always. Never not in control. And you read about this kingdom a lot in the book of Daniel. Uh, universal kingdom rules over all but however, man was chosen to head up God's theocratic kingdom on earth. A kingdom on earth, God's kingdom. Some of the Bible students call it mediatorial kingdom. Uh, most kingdom confusion would be resolved if we just remembered that. And so here's what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist is pondering how God created man to rule over his creation. Like, who in the world is man that you would entrust to him such a noble task? And yet, the Hebrew author is going to use this psalm to remind us of man's originally intended function or position and how Christ is the one who can restore man to that position. Actually, he's the one who's going to head up the coming theocratic administration. There's some deep stuff here, okay? I need you to, to maybe uh, pray a little extra hard this morning to understand the word. I'm just kidding. I tr prayed extra hard that I could just teach it, uh, to, to explain it in ways that are easy to understand. But uh, God appointed man to have rule over the earth, 
However, Satan came along. Remember, what did he do? He deceives man in the form of a created thing. Adam listens. Uh, rather than leading his wife in the Lord's instruction, listens to his wife, listens to Satan, who's a created thing, rather than ruling over creation. Satan just basically usurped it, the authority there. Right there in Genesis chapter 3. So Adam, instead of listening to God, listens to Satan. Satan steals the authority. And the whole world is plunged into sin. Now, man does just about anything but rule today, right? I mean, nature rules over us, for one. Nature rules over man. We fight and battle nature for our, our survival. Man was designed to, to live forever. But now, just we just fight the laws of nature. The laws of nature wear down our bodies. There's natural disasters that are out of our control that were never meant to be, kind of like we saw in Kentucky recently. I mean, the world just rules us. Everything we do, we do by the sweat of our brow. We work, work ourselves to death just to provide sort of thing. That's a result of the curse. Secondly, sin, the sin nature rules over us. Sin nature. We're, the Bible talks about us being slaves to the sin nature. And until we are actually born again by the divine nature of the Spirit, uh, we're just nothing but slaves to the sin nature. At least you know, when we trust in Christ and we're given the Spirit, we can... We can walk according to the divine nature, but still, even then, those two are warring against each other. Um, thirdly, fallen angels have been ruling over man in this world. That's a little hard to understand, but is not Satan called the prince of this world? He's the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, the whole world. John says lies in the power of the evil one. He spoke that in the church age, you know, right? The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Remember when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness? What did he tempt him with? Forfeit the cross, skip the cross, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now, there's a law in place where Satan actually rules the world. He could actually offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Interesting, huh? So, contrary to the illusion that we're in the kingdom age now and Satan is incarcerated or bound, uh, Ephesians 6.12 says we actually struggle right now against the spiritual forces of wickedness. Peter says Satan roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's not incarcerated. He's not locked up. He's very active in the world. We still pray, thy kingdom come, right? Thy will be done. <laughs> Don't we still pray, God, deliver us from the evil one? Does the Bible ever call us kings? Right here now, is, is Christ ever described as the king of the church? No, he's the head of the church. We are ambassadors. Ambassadors live on foreign soil in another territory. The kingdom's not now. Ambassadors, how else does it describe us as heirs? Heirs of the kingdom. Heirs receive something. That something is in the future. If we weren't, if we were, if the kingdom was now, we wouldn't be heirs, we'd be possessors. We'd be ruling and reigning now, which is what a lot of churches believe. All the today's Orthodox churches believe. So the kingdom is not now. Fallen angels have more influence over this man's world than you and I could even dream of. A lot of the bad ideologies out there just destroying our world. Critical race theory. Marxism. Study 
Study Karl Marx's life. Tell me he was not demonically influenced when he came up with that stuff. Islam, an angel of light, appeared to Muhammad. Right? Satan and his henchmen masquerade as angels of light in this world. They pretend to be angels of light, but they're demonic. Mormonism, same thing. They have a tremendous influence on us. So man, created as the pinnacle of God's creation, has lost his position. He's lost his glory. He's lost his crown. He's lost the function of his existence on earth, really. But the story of the Bible from start to finish is how that office actually comes to be restored through Christ, who is the last Adam, or the final Adam. Adam in the garden failed. Christ in the wilderness prevailed. And he's going to set up his kingdom again through the last Adam who took on flesh to undo the works of Satan, to destroy the works of Satan, to restore man in the three theocratic kingdom rule of God on earth. So in the end, what you see at the end of the Bible is the kingdom actually does come. It finally comes. It's finally here. And, and Jesus and his brethren, you see him calling us brethren here, Believers will rule and reign with him for 1,000 years. And we talked about that again in this, this morning's Sunday school. We'll rule and reign with Christ for 1,000 years, even over the angels. Did you know you're going to judge angels, Paul says? We will judge angels. That's incredible. Do you think of man that way with this sort of position and power and authority, like where we were created to be, ruling and reigning with him? Look at second. Look at Revelation chapter two with me. Revelation chapter two. It's not in your notes. It matters, guys, how you live in this life as a believer. If you're, because there's there's rewards coming. And here's what Jesus says to the church at Thyatira. The epistle to Thyatira. Do you know there's seven more epistles in the book of Revelation? Just. <laughs> Uh, nevertheless, what I ha- what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus promises another church, you know, if you... He who overcomes, this is Laodicea, he who overcomes, I'll grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, the Davidic throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Where's his throne at? Right? Davidic throne on earth, father's throne in heaven. But what you see at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22 is those two thrones become one in the new heaven and the new earth. It's the throne of the God and of the Lamb. Anyway, I'm getting deep. Uh, <laughs> uh Man's fall, what you see here is man's fall is only temporary. The angels are temporarily superior to man because Christ has become our kinsman, redeemer. He's come to redeem man by becoming a man. And so he's going to restore us to what we have lost. Andy Woods in the book, his book, The Coming Kingdom, and I, I highly recommend that book. He says, just as God sought to rule over the first Adam, 
who in turn ruled over creation on God's behalf, this very structure is going to be restored. God the Father will rule over the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who in turn will govern the earth on God the Father's behalf. And we call this world to come, the earth to come, the messianic millennial kingdom. And why do we call it the millennium? Because it lasts 1,000 years. A millennium is 1,000 years, and that's the way it's described six times there in Revelation chapter 20. The ultimate hope of the gospel is, is everlasting life on a new heaven and a new earth, but the millennial kingdom that you see right here, see here's the eternal state behind the Christmas tree, <laughs> and then you got the millennial kingdom. And that is like the final chapter of this earth's history before there's a great white throne judgment and then the eternal state on a new heaven and new earth where we get to see God create I think ex nihilo again by the word of his mouth a new heaven a new earth it's going to be awesome but uh, anyway this this millennial kingdom Christ is going to be ruling on his Davidic throne in Jerusalem just as promised we studied that covenant in Sunday school this morning. Uh, it's not going to be ruled by angels, that world. It's, it's going to be ruled by Christ and His redeemed brethren. And uh, in the Messianic kingdom, He rules with a rod of iron. Some of you guys are familiar with that from prophetic scriptures, right? He's going to come. He's going to rule with a rod of iron over those who have survived this great tribulation period, which would be a remnant of Israel, one-third of Israel. And then also those believers uh, who survived the tribulation period will go into that kingdom as well and uh, obviously propagate. And it's just going to be the paradise that we've always longed for. I mean, this is how the Bible describes this time period when Christ's kingdom actually comes. It's described as righteousness. Righteousness reigns. Oh, man. You know what the results of righteousness bring? You know what righteousness brings? It brings peace and, and quietness. Doesn't that sound nice? Peace and quiet, right? No more political just battles out there. No more of that political mass ranting and raving and all this stuff on the news. All that's gone. We know who's king, and he's reigning in righteousness, and righteousness has some amazing practical benefits. I mean, can you imagine if this world was just ran by people who were just loving and humble and could care less about money or power. Wouldn't that be nice? That's what it's going to be like in that day. We get to rule and reign with Him. And, and, and humble, loving people who really care are going to rule the earth. They get to lead the earth, I guess you could say. That's just fantastic to think about. You know, we, we talk about social justice today, which is anything but social justice. So justice, true justice, treats everyone equally. It doesn't give certain privileges to this minority or that minority. It treats everybody equally. That's true justice. Not showing partiality to anybody. Well, Christ is going to rule in perfect justice. And... Israel is going to dwell safely at the center of the world. Isaiah 2, 4, kind of like, just to give you a verse about this, one of my favorite passages. 
He will, he'll judge between the nations. He'll render decisions for many peoples. And they'll hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A nation won't lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. And earlier on in that chapter, it talks about Jerusalem being lifted up and exalted and, and, and it's the center of the world and the nations stream to it. And they come to, to learn from Christ and worship Christ. Well, Sadly, this verse is on the outside the United Nations, United Nations building, of all places. Um, don't put your hope in the United Nations to bring Isaiah 2 to fruition. <laughs> uh, if anything, it's going to bring the exact opposite. Only Christ can bring peace because it requires a victorious God-man who has the power to actually overthrow Satan. The United Nations aren't going to overthrow Satan. If anything, Satan's going to use them. Okay? It requires a God-man to overthrow Satan's current rule on earth, and that's exactly what he does during that tribulation period. That's going to last seven years. And uh, that's basically what Jesus does, is he takes this six-sealed scroll. Have you guys heard about that? The six-sealed scroll in Revelation chapter before and it's basically the title deed to the earth and by every seal that he breaks he's 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 opening up the title deed to the earth that he alone can open and he's going to vanquish all of his enemies every seal pours out his wrath on the unbelieving world and by the end of it the end of the tribulation period basically satan loses his grip on the earth and uh, christ comes back and the kingdom is established firmly everlasting but again, during this time, let's just look at some more characteristics. During this time period, Satan and all the other demons are bound. They're literally incarcerated. They're thrown into the abyss. The curse on creation is going to be lifted. Uh, longevity of life comes back. You know, Anta, you know before the flood how long people lived? Hundreds of years. Longevity of life is restored. The curse is lifted. Uh, there's prosperity in every single way. The, the sower overtakes the reaper. Basically, you can't harvest fast enough. It's going to be awesome. There's no thorns or thistles anymore. You know, thorns and thistles were a part of the curse. Uh, the animal world is restored to, to peace. The lion lays down with the lamb. Is that happening today? Well, the lion's still eating the lamb. <laughs> Uh, infants play by the viper's den. They don't get hurt. I can't imagine my son playing with a snake and you know a viper or a cobra or something like that. But it, they won't bite in that day. I mean, the desert, the deserts are described as becoming fertile, uh, abundant places that flourish. Uh, salt water turns to fresh water. The fishing is unbelievable. Who can't wait for that? Check out Ezekiel 47. The last chapters of Ezekiel talk a lot about this. This is a world that we can only dream about, and it's a world that we make movies about. Um, the signs and wonders that Jesus and the apostles did demonstrated that he is the one who can actually usher in this kingdom. You guys realize that? When Jesus did those signs and wonders, that was saying to, to the Jews and to everybody, I can actually usher in this kingdom that you long for, but why didn't it come? Because they rejected their Messiah. And that waits now until a future national Israel repents in the tribulation period to bring the kingdom. But anyway, so the kingdom isn't a period of 
postponement. We're in a time period called the intercalation, the postponement. But we have hope because Jesus actually did these signs and wonders. And uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5 calls them the powers of the age to come. Isn't that cool? And like when Jesus did all that and the apostles did those signs and wonders, that was like a taste of what is going to be commonplace during the millennial kingdom period. John in his gospel, he highlighted specific miracles that Jesus did, which spoke of his ability to usher in the kingdom. I mean, uh, Christ turned water to wine. It was symbolic of bringing joy and gladness and turning from the, you know, the ritual purity jars to uh, the new covenant, which is going to be much sweeter. Uh, he, he, he fed 5,000 people just by creating bread and fish in his hands. That's symbolic of his, or significant of his ability to bring prosperity and abundance. He walked on water, of all things. Okay? He has power over natural law. He, 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 miraculously, he would catch fish miraculously. I struggled to catch fish. He could fill a net on command. You know, <laughs> uh, that was significant of abundance again and his authority over the animal world. He can cause the animals to do certain things. He, he, stilled the, he stilled nature. He calmed the storm on the sea. He has control over natural elements. He healed the blind. Healed the blind. And a lot of that we saw through a Gospel of Mark was not just a reference to physical healing, although that's going to take place in the millennium too, but spiritual healing. Right? No one won't say in that day, I don't really know. I don't know who the Lord is, because the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Everyone will know who Christ is. And then raising the dead demonstrated his ability to to bring longevity of life and resurrection and get rid of the death, which is part of the the curse of sin. And so these miracles aren't just here to amaze us; they're here to to give us hope in the world to come, that Christ actually is able to bring the kingdom that was promised and has been longed for, that was longed for by the Jews. That's important to have the millennial kingdom in mind. I live with it in my mind every day because I know that this life is preparation for service in His millennial kingdom to come. So I want to be faithful in this life. He was faithful with little, can be trusted with much. Every Christmas we sing this song out of context, pretty much, called Joy to the World. We sang it this morning, didn't we? I'm thankful we did. So think about this. This is more about the second coming than the first coming. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Heaven and nature sing. Why is nature singing? The curse has been lifted, right? Uh, no thorns infest the ground anymore. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. I mean, the curse is, is lifted. He's going to make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. He's going to rule with a rod of iron over the nations. Isn't that great? So we long, just like the Jews longed for the first coming, so we long for the second coming. We're still, we expect the Messiah to come just like they did. Isn't that great? But uh, anyway... This is all important. Alva J. McLean, he wrote, uh, he's probably one of the greatest teachers on the kingdom of God in the last century. And this is a quote from him that I found this week. He said, in the premillennial, that just means before the millennium. Right? There's some who believe we're in the millennium now. And uh, anyway, 
then the premillennial view, the idea that the kingdom is coming, this becomes the consummating link between history and the eternal order of things. Thus, get this. And you might have to think about this quote for a while later and chew on it. But the premillennial view of the kingdom guards the church from either illusion or despair as regards the present life. All those conditions I talked about this morning that we're in culturally, politically, I mean, just all the junk personally, that can lead you to despair, can't it? Or some sort of illusion. So, uh, illusion, think of this. How does the premillennial view guard us from illusion? Well, from the illusion of Satan being bound right now and miracles being commonplace. If we're in the kingdom now, none of us should be sick or dying. Okay? So, basically, if we're in the millennium now, I'm sorry. (laughs) This is as good as it gets, almost. Um, Despair... How does it guard us from despair? Despair from thinking that this is all there is. There's no hope now. There's no hope ever. And that's the way a lot of people live their lives. This is as good as it gets. I only get one life. After this, I'm done. I just cease to exist. But actually, there's so much more to come, even for this earth. Um, His kingdom is coming, but notice verse 8 here. Notice verse 8. Not yet. You see those two little words? Not yet do we see all things subjected to Him. Not yet do we see Christ ruling and reigning. Not yet do we see man's function restored. But let's look at the third reason, third and fourth reason real quickly. The third is that Christ came to restore us spiritually. So He restores our our position, our function, then He restores us spiritually. He has to do this. There's no millennial kingdom without restoration of the spiritual problem. If you don't have your spiritual problem dealt with, you will not be in the millennial kingdom. You have to believe in what Christ has done for you on the cross, that he died for your sins, right? And that's what verse 9 says. It says Jesus came into the world, think about this, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That he might taste death for us. And he didn't just nibble on it. He swallowed it. He swallowed death, man, for us. And for notice that, for everyone's sins. Made salvation available for everyone. The whole world. He died for the whole world. However, just like in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the blood is only applied to the one who actually believes. He died for everyone, but the condition is you must believe in what Jesus did for you when He actually shed His blood for you. So, anyway, we could sum this part up, I think, by saying there's no Easter without Christmas. No cross without the cradle. But because Jesus became a man, He was able to die for us. A death that brings salvation to us. And and because of that, because of what He did for us, that's going to bring Him glory and and honor. Um. Notice uh, verse 9, 2. Look at the suffering there. It's singular. Because of the suffering of death, that's a singular tense there. The singular act of suffering on the cross paid for the sins of mankind. If you want your sins paid for, you only look to one place, and that is the cross. 
Don't look to yourself. Don't look to a priest. Don't look to a pastor. You look to Jesus Christ on the cross and you'll be saved. Isn't that great news? That's good news. But notice, He only died for man. He didn't die for the angels. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but to descendants of Abraham. And there's descendants of Abraham by blood, by blood and faith, and there's descendants of Abraham by faith. But He helps mankind. He doesn't help angels. There's no opportunity for angels, fallen angels, to be redeemed. There's another proof of... uh, I guess uh, how his humanity is not a sign of his inferiority. But uh, anyway, as, as eternal God, Jesus provided an eternally effective sacrifice for sin. Revelation chapter 1, 5, and 6, this is what uh, it says. He has released us from our sins by his blood. His blood was shed for us on our behalf. Right, there's no without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And uh, Hebrews 10 goes on to the, to differentiate between the, how Christ's sacrifice on the cross was superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. And for one, look at this: uh, the Old Testament sacrifices. You know what those did? They just reminded you of your sin over and over and over again. They actually didn't uh, forgive you, in the sense that. You have your sins forgiven forever. You just have every time you sin, you just keep offering these sacrifices. However, Christ's sacrifice provides removal of sin. Removal of sin. Uh, sacrifices under the law repeated constantly. Hebrews chapter ten says he died. He he sacrificed himself once for all time. It's not a repeat sacrifice. Just once. Uh, sacrifices on the, on the under the law. We're more like anticipation, anticipating Christ's sacrifice and Christ's sacrifice fulfilled those Old Testament sacrifices. Old Testament shadows, Christ was the substance that actually cast the shadow. Uh, Blood of animals versus the blood of Christ. Involuntary sacrifices versus voluntary. Hebrews 9 13 and 14 says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, Sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, to cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. So, basically, Christ's blood is superior to the blood of the animals that was shed in every way. And we'll talk more about next week how He was, in this passage, perfected, and how He was the author of our salvation but uh, last point, we've seen how, how Jesus can restore man's position or function. He re- restores our spiritual condition through his sacrifice. But what about our physical condition? What about these bodies that wear out? That's the last point. Because that's another problem we have, right? That's another problem we have in this fallen sinful world. Well, it says he partook of flesh and blood to bring many sons to glory. That's the phrase I want to focus on, to bring many sons to glory. And I understand that as a reference to uh, resurrection glory, a whole and complete salvation someday. We've, we've been saved. We've had our, you know, our sins forgiven. 
We've started this redemption process, but someday the day is coming. Christ is going to come and get us or resurrect us. And we're going to have fully glorified bodies that do not even have a sin nature anymore. Hallelujah. Looking forward to that. We'll receive resurrected, glorified bodies just like he has, has a resurrected, glorified body. No resurrection for us without the incarnation. A key cross-reference for this would be Romans 8, 29 through 30. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. There's that word brethren again. And those, these whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. If you've believed in believed in Christ as your Savior, you've been justified, you've been declared righteous, even though you, you aren't righteous. Judicially, He has called you righteous before Him. And uh, lastly, those whom He justified, He also did what? Glorified. So that's the fourth stage in our um, salvation it's glorification. Those are the four phases of salvation. And our glorification, did you see how, it, how it's spelled there? It, how it's referenced there in the past tense? Glorified. It hasn't happened yet, but it's so certain that you can speak of it as if in past tense. That's neat, isn't it? Christ took on flesh to bring many sons to glory. And that's something that he's going to have forever. When you look at Christ in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, he's a lamb standing there as if slain. What, he, what, we, what we can take away from that is that he still has his glorified body. He still has his human body that's been glorified, and you can still see the scars that he has. That's something he took on forever. When Christ became a man, he became a man forever. You ever thought about that? One guy said that would be comparable to us actually becoming skunks. <laughs> becoming a skunk forever. Uh, I don't know how theological that is. But uh, think of this. Verse 11, he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. I mean, he should be, but he's not. You ever thought about that? He was not ashamed to actually take on flesh and call us his brethren. And it kind of reminds me of a dad who's just really proud of his son and or daughter, and then they might be out shopping or something or out to eat, and you know, the father just can't help but tell everyone about their son or daughter. You know, oh, my son does this and this, and you ought to give him a call sometime. You know, you know how fathers just tend to brag on their children, or moms and dads brag on their children, even to a total stranger. Well, that's kind of how Christ looks at us. He just he brags on us. Ah, those are my brethren. Isn't that great? And I think there's two ways that we're called as brethren here both in the flesh, by the fact that he took on flesh, we're conformed to his image, and then uh, also by faith, by faith, we're his brethren. We both have this trust relationship with the Father. But in sum, let's just consider 
our conditions in this fallen world again. This, this world is a mess. This world is very difficult to live in, just like it was for the original audience. Things are not yet as they should be. And there's a lot of things we can't change. However, look at these four words in verse 9. But we see Jesus. But we see Him. He is sufficient. Right? Whenever, you, whenever you, you look around yourself and you think, I just can't handle all this. Everything that's going on is just too crazy. Look up. <laughs> look to Him. He is sufficient. He is enough. He'll restore you positionally. He'll restore you spiritually. He restores us physically. Christ meets all of our real deepest needs. Are we looking to Him? Are we listening to Him? Are we anchored to Him? Because the reality is that anything else we look to for hope, anything else we look to for meaning, whatever it is, this world makes us want to turn to all sorts of different things. Look to Him, because everything else, the Hebrew author says, is inferior. Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. There's nothing we aren't going to go through in this world that God has not spoken to in His Son. He's the anchor that you need in a turbulent world. And all God's people said, 